This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Long ago, an immeasurable, boundless, inconceivable number of Asamkhya Kalpas in the past, there was a Buddha named Awesome Sound King, thus come one, worthy of offerings of right and universal knowledge, perfect clarity and conduct. The Kalpa in which this Buddha lived was called exempt from decay, and the land was called great achievement. But after Awesome Sound King, thus come one, had passed into extinction, and after the correct law had also passed away in the period of the counterfeit law. <clears throat> practitioners of overbearing arrogance exercised great authority and power. At this time, there was a bodhisattva named Never Disparaging. Now, for what reason was this bodhisattva named Never Disparaging? Whatever persons this bodhisattva happened to meet, whether monks, nuns, laymen, or laywomen, Never disparaging would bow in obeisance to all of them and speak words of praise, saying, I have profound reverence for you, and I would never dare treat you with disparagement and arrogance. Why? Because you are all practicing the Bodhisattva way and are certain to attain Buddhahood. Among the four kinds of believers, there were those who gave way to anger, their minds lacking in purity, and they spoke ill of the Bodhisattva and cursed, saying, who is this bodhisattva, and where does this prediction that we will attain Buddhahood come from? We have no use for such vain and irresponsible predictions. Many years passed in this way, during which the bodhisattva was constantly subjected to curses and abuse. Not giving way to anger, however, each time the bodhisattva spoke the same words, you are certain to attain Buddhahood. Some among the group would throw sticks of wood or tiles and stones. But even at a distance, the bodhisattva continued to call out, I would never dare disparage you, for you are all certain to attain Buddhahood. And because of this, the overbearing, arrogant monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen gave this bodhisattva the name Never Disparaging. Right speech is the third of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, Samyag Bhak. And it falls under the category of virtue or ethical conduct. And the Buddha said that abstaining from lying, from divisive speech, from abusive speech, and from idle chatter is called right speech. And speech is perhaps the wheel of karma through which we most um, obviously, if not easily, perhaps the most obviously hurt one another. Not because we don't think ill of one another, we often do. Not because we don't cause bodily harm. I mean, in general, we don't go around hitting each other, but there's a look or a turning away or a, a touch that we miss or a touch that we misplace and these are the ways that we harm one another. 
but speech we engage in so often and so casually that it's very easy. It's very easy to do damage. And, you know, none of us sets out to lie outright. At least, I hope we don't. But it's likely that most of us at some time have, in one way or another, covered our tracks or pretended we knew something when we didn't, really. I remember for years, Shugen Sensei, before the introductory retreat every month, would um, gather the residents and would say, you know, people are about to come in, 30, 35 new people, and they will look at you, some of you which arrived, uh, whom arrived three days ago, and you're wearing robes, and they're going to see these robes, and they're going to think, you know what you're doing. And so just be aware, when somebody asks you a question, he would say, just speak from your own experience. Not what you've read, not what you've heard, just what you've experienced. And if you don't know, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. <laughs> but when we see not knowing as weakness, it's difficult you know, to fess up to not knowing, you know, even in a tradition that speaks of not knowing as a virtue. We don't quite believe it. And in the sutras it says, when a person who's abstained from false speech is asked to tell in a town meeting, for example, or with their family, or um, at court, if they're asked to tell what they know, such a person, if they know, they'll say, I know. And if they don't know, they will just as easily say, I don't know. So a person who's abstaining from false speech doesn't consciously tell a lie to protect themselves, perhaps even to protect someone else, or for the sake of a reward. Likewise, a bodhisattva abstains from divisive, divisive speech. They don't tell here what has happened over there. They don't go over there and tell what has happened over here, trying to separate, trying to divide those from here and there. Loving harmony. This bodhisattva sows harmony wherever they go. They sow harmony with their words, certainly with their thoughts. I heard a, a story about a woman in um, just as the Second World War was starting, and, and she was in Germany, and she was from a Jewish family. And they heard that in Berlin they were giving out visas to get out of the country. So she decided that she was going to try to do this for her family. So she got on a train, a couple of hours ride, and she got to Berlin and went into, I guess, what was a consulate or embassy of some kind. And I could picture it very well because I've spent many hours in a place like it. It's uh, like a um, warehouse. And the one where I was in had a tin roof, a hot, very hot tin roof. And so where it was raining, you couldn't hear the person sitting next to you. So everybody's screaming to be heard, just talking normally. And it's summer, and it's 100 degrees, probably. There's no windows. There's no way to call or to go outside because if you go out, you lose your place. You've been there since probably four in the morning or five in the morning. 
And so outside, you've been standing for several hours. And there's people going back and forth selling you things. And back then, maybe it was a little stool. And now they have folding chairs and um, water coolers that give you a whole meal as you're waiting. And if you're lucky, you get in that day. If you're not lucky, you could be there for three, four hours before the doors even open and not even get in. But she got in that first day, and so everybody's there. And there's these long benches without a back. And so you're just sitting. You feel like cattle, really. And you're sitting next to each other. And every hour or so, you feel like you move a foot a little bit closer to the desk where the officer, immigration officer is. And in this case, there was just the one, the one German immigration officer tending to hundreds of people. And she spends the whole day there. And at a certain point, he says, there's no more visas, and just closes shop. And everybody goes home or away to find a place to stay and come back the next day and try again. So she comes back the next day, because she knows it's really the only chance that they have. And so she comes back and is once again standing in line. And once again, she spends the whole day there. And everybody is exhausted. They're hot. They're tired. They just want to get out. And he gives his allotted number of visas. And when he's done, he says, that's it. And the thing is, there's also this fear. Because you know that your fate is in the hand of this person, the hands of this person. And if they're having a bad day, that could be it for you. And so you do everything you can to not cross them in any way. That's if you can get close enough to even talk to them. And so the second day goes by, and he says, same thing. The visas are, are done. We're closing for the day. And everybody just goes in an uproar. You know, everybody's yelling, and they're screaming. And the guy doesn't really care. He just packs away his things and starts to walk away. And this woman decides to go up. She makes her way all the way up the, the rows and just goes up to him at his desk before he leaves. And she says, you know, I just wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank you for your time. And she turns and walks away. And as she's leaving, she hears steps behind her. And then she hears, ma'am, ma'am. And when she turns, it's the officer that's running after her. And he says, I have this stack of visas. They're for you. And she takes them and smiles at him and thanks him and turns and walks basically to her freedom while he turns, goes back into the building, his endless paper piles. And she could have, it could have been calculated. You know, the more, more cynical among us would think, well, it was, it was calculated. This was her last chance. So she thought, let me just be nice, see if anything happens. But isn't it interesting that we would even think that? Instead of thinking, of course, she's just being kind. That's just natural. If nothing had happened, if she hadn't gotten the visas, I probably would never have heard the story. And yet, would it have been any less powerful? Her, her, very simple, I want to thank you for your time. 
like saying, I have profound reverence for you and I would never dare treat you with disparagement and arrogance. Although I'm hot and I'm tired and I'm afraid and you hold my fate in your hands, I will never dare disparage you. So not only does she refrain from divisive or abusive speech, but she actively involves, uh, invokes kind speech, causing it to appear when it was not there before. That's what, what Dogen says. That kind speech is offered little by little, and then kind speech expands. And so even kind speech that is not ordinarily known or seen comes into being. And so those who hear your kind speech will be deeply touched. They will always remember it. Certainly the guard will always remember it. The monks, the nuns, that laymen and laywomen that uh, Bodhisattva never disparaging was addressing certainly remember it. And they don't like it. They are threatened that he's uh, making this prediction. He's saying, I have profound reverence for you. I would never dare disparage you. And the response is, how dare he or she? How dare this Bodhisattva tell us that we're Buddhas? It's such an irresponsible prediction, they say. Is it maybe that they're afraid? They won't live up to it? Is it that it's an irresponsible prediction or that they don't want the responsibility? Or what if they're thinking, well, what if the others make it, but I don't? And up until now, they could just go on in their merry way, and if they see it, great. But if they don't, but now, now what's their excuse? And what we'll be threatened by is um, sometimes so, so simple, really. Um, many years ago, I, I was a vegetarian. <clears throat> and I, when I would go home, the first few times, especially that I went home, my family would ask, well, is there anything that you don't eat? And I would say, well, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. And they said, great, so you eat chicken, right? And I said, well, I could kind of hesitate. And they're like, well, you know, chicken is OK. And it happened so many times that after a while, it was, yes, I, I eat chicken. I love chicken. Chicken is great. Um, otherwise, I would just eat a lot of salads, basically. It's like in that movie, Everything Illuminated, Everything is Illuminated, where he's vegetarian. And he's, I can't remember if it was Russia or Ukraine. And when he goes to a restaurant, they basically give him a, a baked potato. It was kind of like that. It was in the 90s in, in Mexico, Mexico City. So I just ate a lot of salads and boiled uh, vegetables. And, but when it didn't happen, when they didn't ask, we would just sit down to, to a meal. And invariably, but they knew that I was vegetarian, and invariably, people would spend a good part of the meal explaining to me why they needed to eat meat. It was for their bones. It was for their heart. It was for their hair, for their complexion. I mean, you, you name it. And I would just sit there and smile and nod politely while I ate my boiled carrots. And it went so deep 
that 15 years later, when I stopped being a vegetarian, my family still, to, to this day, still asks me, Do, is there anything that you don't eat? It's like I, I changed the channel, and, and they haven't found their way back to the regular station you know, after all these years. <laughs> and again, you know, that's so innocuous. You know, I'm a vegetarian, but what about when the words have a little more oomph behind them? You know, I'm gay, I'm Republican, I'm pro-fracking, I'm pro-choice. What's our investment then, and how do we respond to the one who is sometimes deeply threatening our sense of self? How unsettling that can be. So imagine someone running up to you, bowing deeply, and saying, I would never dare disparage you because you are a Buddha. Wouldn't you be a little taken aback? Dogen says, the kind speech means that when you see sentient beings, you arouse the heart of compassion and offer words of loving care. It is contrary to cruel or violent speech. And cruel speech you know, can be very harsh, but it can also be very subtle. You, you sow a little doubt here. You plant a little complaint there. You put this person down to elevate yourself. You laugh a little bit, just a little bit behind their back. And it can happen before we even are aware that this is what we have done. The Buddha said there's, there's five criteria, criteria to follow when deciding whether you should say what you want to say. Is it factual? Is it true? Is it beneficial? And by that he means, is it, is it connected to the goal of enlightenment? Is it endearing and is it agreeable? If it is all of these things, then go ahead and say it. But if any, if any of these are missing, then kindly refrain. And you know there's, there's the um, convention, but I'm, I'm guessing that it was probably true that he would, he would say what was worth saying three times or he would wait until someone asked him a question three times before answering it because then he knew that it was a question that was actually worth asking. So if something isn't true, why say it at all? I mean, there might be, there might be situations in which lying is appropriate, is the compassionate action. But most of the time, most of the time, as we know, lying is self-serving. If something is true but is not beneficial to the path, to this person's awakening, and if it's not endearing or if it's not agreeable, do we need to say it? And it's interesting, I don't know if that's really the translation. I, I find it a little hard to believe that the Buddha would say something needed to be endearing. <laughs> but maybe, maybe. Uh, maybe it's what they really mean is kind. You said kind. And there are many, many things that we'll have to say 
at some point in our lives that will not be endearing and perhaps won't be agreeable to those who hear them. Martin Luther King Jr. said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. I mean, he had a most felicitous way with words, so it's hard not to hear what he said, and even harder to forget. Maybe he was an example, an example of what Dogen meant, you know, when he said that, uh, ponder the fact that kind speech is not just praising the merit of others, that it has the power to turn the destiny of a nation. My mother used to say, you can say anything if you know the right way to say it. And by anything, she meant the truth. She meant saying what needs to be said if you know the right way to say it. And there's many, many ways, of course, to, t to tell uh, the truth and, and to offer kind speech. I came across a, a series of, of cards that a woman made for people who are uh, suffering from cancer. And she's a survivor herself. And she said, you know, it's kind of weird to get a card that says, get well soon, because you might not. If you have cancer, you might not get well soon. You might not get well ever. And so she said she would get these cards and she would think, oh, thanks, I'll try. And she's a designer, so she decided she would make the cards that she would have liked to have gotten herself. And some of them are, are funny, you know, they're humorous. Um, I'm so sorry you're sick, and I want you to know that I'll never try to sell you on some random treatment I saw on the internet. Or I'll, let's go out and, and celebrate with whatever is not disgusting right now that you can actually taste. She says, you know, never say to a person with cancer, you know, everything happens for a reason, or cancer is the journey. She says, I can say that. She said, as the one who went on the journey, you can't say that to me. And I remember Hoshin, Hoshin Ritter, who was a longtime student here and died of cancer. Um, one time I went to see her, she said she hated it. You know, when people said, would say, you know, I've learned so much from my cancer and I am so grateful to have um, gone through this. And she would say, yeah, yeah, but I mean, wouldn't it be so much nicer not to have to go through it? Other cards are, are very simple and direct. I'm really sorry that I didn't get in touch. I didn't know what to say. And they have a little video of her. She's, she's speaking of her, of her business. And she said, this is the card I would have liked to get. And she actually gets choked up when, when she says that. I'm really sorry I didn't get in touch. I didn't know what to say. I want you to know I would never dare treat you with disparagement and arrogance because you are practicing the bodhisattva way and are on your way to Buddhahood. I don't think we should put that on a card <laughs> and sell it. We already, we already do that enough. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, uh, William Sapphire is a, is a speech writer and he was speaking how, um, he was speaking about how 
were so used to canned sentiments and how even in the, in the White House, he was complaining that so many presidents like to just ad lib. And so maybe he was complaining because they're giving less work to the speech writers. Um, but he was saying, we're just so used to canned sentiments. They come in these Hallmark cards. And he was saying that when his brother was, was little, he spent several days making a homemade card, uh, a handmade card for his mother. And on the outside, it said, I will never forget you, mom. And on the inside, it said, you gave away my dog. <laughs> and he said, yes, he was sore, but at least he was original. <laughs> so no, I mean, we shouldn't put, you know, I, will, I will never dare treat you with disparagement on a card. We probably shouldn't even use those words. Maybe we can find our own words to say aloud whenever we can, or in silence when we can't. And what do you think we do when we do liturgy? And when we say you know, that, that a, a dedication is um, perceived and subtly answered. I was talking to somebody the other day, who perceives it? Who answers it? You know, there's, sometimes we're chanting for people who have life-threatening illnesses, many of them whom we don't know, will never know, most likely. Why? Why do that? We were thinking of, of an activity to do with the, the kids. Um, our theme next month is Affirming Life, and we were going to have them plant some seeds that they will then have to care for. And um, the, the intention is for them to give intention to these seeds on top of the physical action of planting that seed, giving it life to write or express words that they would then write on their little container. And one of the, the parents was telling us that she did an experiment. You know, I don't remember his name, the guy who, who speaks to water and has shown the effects that kind words have on water. And they have a, an exercise that you can do with your family, where it's basically this. You have a, a plant that you speak kindly to and another plant that you mildly abuse and see what happens. And this parent did that with, with rice. She said they didn't plant anything, but they had a, two containers of rice in water. And she swears that, you know, so they would offer all of their, their kind words, her and her three sons, to the one container of rice, which was fine, and that the other one started getting moldy. She said after a while it kind of breaks down because they mo both get moldy. But that the one that was spoken to unkindly did in fact mold more quickly. And we are somehow surprised by this, even though we know we're made of the same stuff as everything. We we're surprised by the effect that we have on the world around us. Sometimes we're surprised by the effect we have on each other. The people that we love the most, the people that we care for the most, are the ones that we most often hurt, isn't it? Even at the moment, knowing that's not what I want 
and not being able to stop yourself, to stop the, the words coming out of your mouth. And what a triumph, in a way, it is when you start to see through practice that maybe you don't have to do that, that maybe you don't have to kick someone else verbally when you get threatened, that you don't have to talk and talk when you get nervous, for example. And Dido used to, to say that all the time. You know, if you, if you did an experiment, you had two people, and you told one of them, you're going to wake up every morning, let's say for a year, and bring to mind and express everything that you are grateful for, for half an hour. The other one, you are going to express and bring to mind everything that you hate, that you are displeased with for half an hour. And do this every single day for a year. What kind of people do you think you will have at the end of a year? I mean, it doesn't take too much imagination to see. And yet, we're surprised when our words shape us and shape those around us. We're surprised. And what about with ourselves? Towards yourself, is your speech kind, compassionate, and loving? Towards yourself. What kinds of things do you tell yourself every day, moment to moment, on that cushion, all those hours on the cushion? Do you divide and conquer? Do you berate and criticize? Do you lie, knowingly or unknowingly? Do you fictionalize? Rebecca Solnit says, something wonderful happens to you, and you instantly look back over your life and see it as a series of fortunate events stretching off into the distance like mountain peaks. Something terrible happens, and your life has always been a litany of woe. The present rearranges the past, we never tell the story whole because life isn't a story. It's a whole milky way of events, and we are forever picking out constellations from it to fit who and where we are. The problem is that when what happens inside us is unknown, forget about constellations. It is like that TV with the two stuck channels you can't get out. And so what's happening here, you project out there. Of course, you, you, there's no other way. And what you see out there comes inside. Comes as extra. But then as you begin to get rid of the static, just a little bit at a time, then other options begin to open up. Then it's when I say you, you, you see, oh, I am tired, I am upset, I am dissatisfied. I don't have to go and pick a fight now with someone else. The last element of right speech is not engaging in idle chatter. I mean, so much of it is, is fear, really, of silence of not fitting in, of appearing dumb or uninterested. 
afraid perhaps of what we will see if we actually quiet down. And the perhaps most safe, safe, uh, safe way to protect yourself, because we're spending hours silent with ourselves, a very effective way that we have um, developed is to fall asleep. And you see it all the time. There's people who are you know, bright and bushy-tailed, and they take their seat, and the moment they turn in, it's like a switch goes off. They're out. And this is, it's a hard one, because if you don't know that you're falling asleep, there's not much you can do. If you do, then to take the work to trace it back, what is actually happening right now? Is there something that I'm afraid or hesitant to see? The Bodhisattva speaks when it's appropriate to speak and is silent when it's appropriate to be silent. But how do you know? The Buddha, with his usual methodical way, says you reflect. You reflect on it before. You reflect on it during. You reflect on it after. There's a practice, I don't remember if I've mentioned it recently, there's a practice, in the, especially in the Tibetan tradition, where the moment you wake up, you um, express your, your intention to give everything in that day towards your enlightenment and the enlightenment of others, raising the bodhicitta, basically. And that everything that you do in speech, word, and action, in um, thought and action, is dedicated towards others. And at the end of the day, right before you go to bed, you review, did I, did I actually do that? They speak, in fact, of a, of a teacher, I don't remember his name, who had a pile of black rocks and a pile of white little pebbles. And for every hurtful, action, word, or thought, he would take a black pebble and put it forward. And for every good, affirming action, um, word, or thought, he would take a white pebble. And in the beginning, for years, in fact, the black pebble pile was much bigger. But little by little, that began to change. Until it said at the end, he only had white pebbles. And if, if we think that it's actually a bodhisattva like never disparaging, couldn't actually exist. Because I remember thinking that when I first heard that story, um, I thought, ah. I mean, yes, there are people who, who have a, a core to them that is, is unshakable. But I thought, really, to that, to that extent, really? And then I read a story about um, Lincoln, who he was already president. And he was kept waiting by one of his generals, his own general, for over an hour. He went to see McClelland in his house. And McClelland was really a bit of a diva, actually quite a diva. Uh, he apparently wasn't a very good general. But he had a very good opinion of himself. And he had a thing about power. And so he thought 
nothing of having the president wait for him. And Lincoln's aides were besides themselves. I and mean, after 15 minutes, they thought, we should just get out of here, and you should fire him. Everybody thought they should fire him anyway, because he was so bad. He had no qualms about sending his, his soldiers ahead while he drank tea. And Lincoln kept laughing and saying, you know, it's really, it's, it's OK. It's fine. And he just stayed and waited and told stories you know, to pass the time. And I remember thinking that and really trying to put myself in that place of that much authority, that much power, and really not minding, really not caring that somebody else is slighting you. How many more, much more humble, much smaller slights have I not responded to with anger and with pride? He really, from what I've read, he seemed to really be that kind of person. Like it was, he saw it as a waste of time to disparage someone else. So you reflect on what you're going to say, and you reflect as you're saying it, and you reflect after you've said it. That's the one thing I, I love about writing that reflection that by necessity has to go into it. And to say something well, you know, the, the trimming and the editing and the cutting and the rewriting, to say something in the best possible way, whether it's the, the cleanest or the simplest or the most lyrical, beautiful, poetic way of saying it. So it has the highest chance of being heard. When I get discouraged, I think you know, how much work it actually does take to say something well. Hemingway, it is said, wrote the um, end to Farewell to Arms 49 times. And somebody asked him, why? I mean, 49 times, really, why? And he said, I had to get the words right. I think we all must do the work to get the words right. Getting the right words out in the right way, at the right time. Because the right words have the power to turn the destiny of a nation, as Dogen says. But even if they turn one human heart, their power would not be any less evident or valuable. This is called Eye to Eye by Naomi Shihab Nye. Please forgive this interruption. I am forging a career, a delicate enterprise of eyes, yours included. We will meet at the corner, you with your sack lunch, me with my guitar. We will be wearing our famous street faces, anonymous as trees. Suddenly you will see me. You will blink, hesitant, then realize I have not looked away. For one brave second, we will stare openly from borderless skins. This is my salary. There are no days off.
For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.